This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. You're about to listen to an hour of local journalism. We catch you up on what happened this week. We discuss how issues look different to different people so you can get a clearer, bigger picture of the Puget Sound area, who we are, why we love it here, the challenges we're facing, decisions we're making. And we're asking you to support this journalism with a phone call to 206-543-9595 or go online to KUOW.org. All the more important because right now, during this hour, someone I don't know, this is an anonymous listener, and I don't know who that is, but they they have offered to match all the donations this hour for Week in Review up to $1,000. So if you do donate right now, then whatever your donation is, uh, it'll be doubled. So KOW.org is the way to do that. We're going to go through why you should care about an Alaska crab season getting canceled and the pros and cons of gunfire detecting microphones and how a giant grocery store merger might affect people who live here and what it all has to do with Amazon. And of course, at the end of the show, always leaving you something to smile about. It may or may not have to do with something called the Big Dumper. I can't get, I can't really guarantee that one way or the other. But uh, in any case, if you're a Week in Review lover, then be a supporter of it right now or else uh, we won't take advantage of this challenge match. So go to KOW.org or to on the phone, 206-543-9595. And thank you for that. Okay, let's uh, introduce you to our panel for this hour. We've got GeekWire's contributing editor, Mike Lewis, here with us in the studio. Mike, good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. We've got KOW Soundside host, Libby Denkman. Libby, always a treat when you're on Week in Review. So Thanks for coming. So fun to be here. Thanks, Bill. And Insiders tech correspondent, Catherine Long. Catherine, great to have you on the show. So happy to be here, Bill. So let's get at the news of the week. Bristol Bay is not that far from here. Up over Vancouver Island, inside passage across the Gulf and Alaska Peninsula, it's close enough that a lot of the North Pacific fleet that fishes Bristol Bay is based somewhere in the Puget Sound region. So we felt it all the way down the coast last year when Alaska canceled the Bristol Bay Red King crab harvest, which shook up even the old salts on the Discovery Channel. I have one of the largest amounts of king crab to catch in the fleet. That's how I make my money. And without that, what's a king crabber that can't catch king crab? Captains must hunt new species or face losing everything they've built. This is not ideal conditions to be setting a long line here for your first time. This is stupid, but I have to. And they might have to again, because this week, Alaska Fish and Wildlife canceled that Red King crab harvest for the second straight year, and they surprisingly canceled the winter snow crab harvest for the first time ever. Libby Dankman, on your show Soundside, the head of the Alaska Bering Sea Crabbers, told you how much this is going to hurt. There's going to be many boats tying up at the dock this year. Our vessels are facing bankruptcy. They're having to lay off crew. And some of these crew have been working on these boats for 10 and 20 years. 
I met one just a couple of weeks ago that had been working on that boat for 25 years. So it's devastating for our fishermen. Um, they're going to be looking for jobs. Boats are going to be going up for sale. And I've already heard some of them are selling their homes and moving. They, they can't afford to live. It's, it's really devastating. And a lot of these guys, too, this is a way of life, fishing. And there aren't a lot of other fisheries to go into. So it's going to be a job transition. And so we're trying to scramble and figure that out and how to help them find other work. Yeah, Bill, that was Jamie Gowen with Alaska Bering Sea Crabbers. And one of the interesting things she talked about was the different ways that the populations of red king crab in Bristol Bay and then the Bering Sea snow crab have been moving over the last couple of decades. Red king crab have been in pretty steady decline since 2008. There's a lot of factors involved there. Some of it is involved with climate change and the rising temperatures. But the Bering Sea snow crab, it's really been a spiking and unpredictable population. And What happened in 2018 to a lot of her fishermen, she represents about 60 boats and a lot, you know, hundreds of fishermen, uh, was in 2018, you saw this big recruitment population of snow crab. So a huge number of young crab that they were finding in their analysis and scientists were saying, wow, this next season is going to be huge. So a lot of fishermen went out, they bought equipment, they thought we're gearing up for this big, you know, lucrative season. And then the theory goes that these higher temperatures in the Bering Sea have created uh, in the crabs metabolism spikes. The the crabs need more food to survive. Mm -hmm. And this bigger population of young crabs combined with the more food they needed meant that the population just crashed. So there was a huge uh, disappointment there in 2019 in the harvest. And since then, the snow crab, you know, have been a really big concern. Like you mentioned, it's never been canceled before, but this is just going to be devastating to a lot of fishermen who do also have ties and often spend a lot of time here in in, uh, the Seattle area. Yeah. Mike, does this bring you back to your days on a fishing boat? Yeah. Quite a few years ago, uh, the PI, Post-Intelligence or Newspaper, uh, when it was still a newspaper, put me on a crab boat for a season to write about. When they were changing, they made a big, big change in the industry, which was moving from a derby-style fishery, which meant you fished until you hit your limits and you you didn't stop regardless of weather, to a quota-style fishery, which is a very interesting development. has had good and bad effects, but quota meant you were awarded your historic percentage of the catch. So if it was $14 million and you typically got, say, a quarter percent, your boat did, you were awarded that in perpetuity. And that's the way crabbing is structured right now. Halibut fisheries are structured very much in the same way. And so there are people right now who've already paid to lease someone else's catch, mm-hmm. right? They've already mm-hmm. paid for this. And now this, and I don't know, I would imagine in the contracts, maybe there are contingencies for this, but some people are going to, there's a lot of people who are going to lose a tremendous amount of money with this being closed. But the like the like the story said, like Hal Burton's story said in the Seattle Times, this fishery, the Red King Crab fishery, has been in decline for a long time now. This is not anything new, and this, the only way you can sometimes save a fishery is to completely suspend fishing in it because you do need that reproducing population, and if you get below a certain number, you're going to crash that fishery forever. Yeah, one of those Discovery Channel uh, crabbers said his quota was basically toilet paper. Mm. At, at this point. Right. And, you know, that show, by the way, I, I haven't watched it a lot, but I, I get the the whiff of, I feel this way about chef shows as well, like that some of these people, I don't know how well they're doing in many ways, 
And and I, I get kind of wor- it was it was referred to Libby in the interview you did the idea that this is you know this is a crash for a way of life. There are people who've been doing this for generations, and their parents did, and their grandparents did, and start to wonder how sustainable is this yeah. life that's part of the the, the the West Coast. Well, and the ripple effects go out to communities. A lot of indigenous communities in southwestern Alaska, places like St. Paul, which is a little island in the Bering Sea where these boats go, and there's a big uh, fish processing plant there that employs hundreds of people. The tax base of St. Paul, like their schools and everything, it's all funded by taxes from the fishing industry. And so when these seasons close, they're devastated. They don't have the money for this infrastructure. So Jamie Gowen and others are saying there needs to be relief here because, like you said, a way of life will be going away. And that means a lot more than just for these fishermen. And you also have this the, the added problem that when you do lay off uh, crew members on these boats, you are actually dismantling a fairly effective and a very important team in regarding safety. Because once you get a good crew and you talk to any captain in the Bering Sea, the way that crew works together is fundamental in all of the crew members staying safe. <laughs> Having mm. been out of the Bering Sea for one crab season, it's the most sustained tension of my entire life. It was bad weather out there and frightening from the moment we got out there till we got even the, the when the crew was getting worried, you know, my worry was ramping, you know, beyond, beyond measure. But that sort of thing, you, we were relatively safe out there because we had a lot of experienced crew members. And when they get laid off and they go into other areas, the backfill when the season does open is going to be inexperienced people. And this is what really, really can make a fishery that's already inherently dangerous much more so. Catherine Long, what did you notice about all of this? Um, I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, feeling a great deal of sympathy for these crabbers who are, uh, you know, on the on the brink of losing their livelihoods. And it sounds like these communities that are also on the brink of, of losing a, a large tax base, as, as Libby reported, it sounds potentially devastating and uh, wondering, you know, how much longer it can continue or what these communities, what kind of solutions they they might be experimenting with to replace some of that lost revenue. Yeah. And, and one, another source of crabs for if you you're an eater, is uh, has been Russia. It's like there's Russia, Norway, and I don't know, maybe Canada. I don't know, but but you know, cold weather countries, and we're not buying from Russia anymore since the war. And uh, Mike, you were telling me about the situation in Norway where this crab is invasive. Yeah, there, so the the Russian fishermen essentially planted king crab uh, because of the the temperature of the water, the conditions are relatively similar. Uh, and it turns out that king crab grow great there. Now, the problem is, of course, it's outcompeting indigenous species. So it's creating havoc over there. But the whole industry is now moving that direction because it's actually still in that far north in like, like the Barents Sea area, very, very cold, very far north. The crab is actually doing relatively well there. And so, but those are not U.S.-based fisheries. Those are all, you know, Norwegian-based, Swedish-based, Russia-based fisheries, Finland-based and so these are not areas that are going to be able for the local industry anyway to compensate uh, by fishing because they're not going to be fishing there whatsoever. Finally, I also recommend uh, Libby's interview uh, with um, it was a UW professor who was telling you that this, you know, this gets interesting. For one thing, uh, our listeners may have heard that the sockeye salmon runs up there are 
better than they've ever been. It's wild. Yeah, it's a record sockeye salmon runs for the last couple of years. I was talking to Daniel Schindler, who's the lead researcher with the University of Washington's Alaska Salmon Program. And unlike sockeye and salmon runs in the, you know, Washington state, for example, they the sockeye in Bristol Bay have responded really well to temperature increases. They are getting more time without ice in the rivers and streams where they're born. They get this like great amount of phytoplankton because of the higher temperatures. They're mm-hmm. able to leave and go out to the big waters earlier. And they've responded just they're they're a winner, basically, of the climate change situation that's happening. Now, other marine species, other salmon runs elsewhere, and of course, the, the crab species in these same waters not the same response. Right. So it's just really unpredictable and a, a fascinating thing and really, uh, in my opinion, terrifying to watch the ways that what we understand about our natural world are being upended. Uh, we're going to pause here on that with the Week in Review, digesting what's happened this week. And again, we're talking about uh, Alaska Fish and Wildlife canceling the red crab, red king crab season again this year and canceling the snow crab season there in Bristol Bay for the first time that's ever happened. And you're listening to Week in Review, which that's what we're about, is 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 figuring out what just happened, but then putting it in context with the long history. You know, I, I Libby, you interviewed on, on Soundside, um, you interviewed a guy named John Speltz, who co-owns the 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 market in Fisher's uh, Fisherman's Terminal? Wild Salmon Market. Wild yeah. Salmon Market. I know John Speltz. I went to University of Washington with John Speltz. He used to fish in Alaska. For people who are new arrivals here, they may not know just how how deep this runs and how yep. much a part of the Puget Sound area it is. And I, I'm 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 bringing this up because I'm again making another pitch for local journalism on KUOW. Yeah, it's so funny. And you and I were talking about the way that. Um, you know, growing up here, you just you run into the the marine uh, workers. And, you know, I used to when I was younger going out and, you know, hanging out at bars in, in Belltown, for example, and you would see the guys who were coming off of boats and they had all that money to spend. Flush. And, yeah, they're flush with cash. Yeah. And so it's just, yeah, you really are connected in a different way when you, you um you know, you have roots here and you see that the the way that the population um, is affected. Yeah, I've met fish processors. I've, I've interviewed cannery workers here. If if KUOW helps you get a picture, get the flavor, the smells, the history, the interconnectedness of the Puget Sound area, then please make a pitch or make a pledge right now to KUOW.org. You can use the phone if you like. Go to 206-543-9595 because, Libby, we're trying to take this anonymous Week in Review fan up on their pledge to match dollar for dollar a thousand bucks coming in this hour. Yeah, that's right. A thousand dollars, two oh six five four three nine five nine five K U O W dot O R G. That means that any amount you give right now will be doubled up to a thousand dollars. We are ticking down that goal so that we want to maximize that entire gift. We cannot claim the money if we do not maximize that one thousand dollars. Think about the value that Week in Review brings to you week in and week out, Bill and his panelists. Think about the way that you feel more connected to the stories in your community, the way that you are able to uh, listen. And maybe, you know, sometimes you're yelling at the radio. Sometimes you're like, huh, I really learned something there. Whatever it is that you take away, think about all the work that goes into the programming here and put your dollars where your values are. KUOW.org or 206-543-9595. That's how to give. Yeah, I got yelled at by a listener named Doug last week because I said, you know, making the playoffs in baseball is not quite what it used to be. 
Doug, let me know. <laughs> oh, what? The, the the look on Libby Dateman's face right now, Doug. If you haven't if you haven't given up, if you haven't uh, uh, given up on KOW, uh, we had a nice little exchange about it, and uh, you know, I hope you're a listener, a yeller, and a supporter of KOW. Go to kow.org, dot org two zero six five. I'm with you, Doug. <laughs> five. I'm outnumbered. Five four three nine five nine five. I get a thank you gift, right? We got the we got the 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 right to bear knowledge T shirt for 10 bucks a month, whatever you want to do. You decide, as always. Uh, okay, let's let's wrap this up. Again, your uh, donation goes double, goes twice as far because of this nice listener who's matching uh, all these pledges if we can get $1,000 worth this hour. Uh, 543-9595-KUOW.org. Let's take a short break, and we got more news to discuss and analyze for you on Weekend Review, and we come right back. KUOW's Week in Review this week is Insider's tech correspondent Catherine Long, KUOW Soundside host Libby Denkman, and GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. And I'm your host, Bill Radke. The biggest supermarket chains in the Pacific Northwest, some of the biggest in this country, plan to merge. Kroger owns QFC and Ralph's and Fred Meyer and more. Albertsons owns Safeway and more. Um, Catherine Long, is the Federal Trade Commission going to let Kroger buy Albertsons? You know, I don't know. I think that's what a lot of us are wondering. Uh, uh, you know, the, the groceries are, are agreeing to merge, but we're not entirely sure if the deal is going to be approved. They've said that they're going to divest themselves of somewhere between 100 and 375 stores in order to try to avoid some of those antitrust complaints. But the New York Times reported that uh, previously when grocery chains have merged, those sorts of divestitures haven't always worked. Um, in 2014, uh, the, the Bellingham-based retailer Hagen, it bought more than 100 stores that Albertsons had sold to win approval for, for its merger with Safeway. But a year later, Hagen filed for bankruptcy and Albertsons brought, bought the stores back. So, mm. <laughs> it's, you know, even, even some of these steps that these, uh, these large grocery chains might take to avoid antitrust scrutiny might not work out. Would they? Would these supermarket chains? I guess if they came together under Kroger, would they raise prices? Do we? Can we tell? You know, I think that's that's certainly a concern. Uh, you know, them them teaming up is going to uh, you know increase the, uh, the 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 competition with Walmart, the, the nation's largest grocery store, certainly. And I think it it could also potentially uh you know if they are selling some of their stores especially in in the western states where um they they have a lot of uh physical footprint that could potentially actually be a boon for amazon which is seeking to expand its grocery footprint its amazon fresh stores are another um sort of mid-range mid mid mid-priced alternative to uh the safeways and qfcs that a lot of us shop in a kroger and albertson's merger could help amazon Potentially, I mean, if if they're seeking to to offload some stores, or if prices go up in in the, in the stores that they keep. What's interesting to me here is is a lot of the attention being paid to antitrust. Remember, at the beginning of the Biden administration, he had, takes on Tim Wu, uh, an author of a terrific couple of terrific books on antitrust history, a uh, law professor, uh, Lena Khan, who gets appointed as the chair of the FTC. 
um, uh, Jonathan Cantor, who is the head of the antitrust division for the Department of Justice. And they, those, that, that trifecta was considered like these are the anti- new antitrust warriors taking a new interpretation of antitrust. But most of the conversation has focused on tech. And it's not focused on a lot of other things that actually impact people's daily lives every bit as much. And I would say grocery chains. I would hope that there's a very serious look at this because remember, all the issues we had with supply chain during the pandemic, and everyone's talked endlessly about that, some of that is not supply chain issues. Some of that is actually a result of consolidation issues. When you have too much consolidation, it means that if one element of that consolidation fails, everything starts failing. And this is the problem going to be the problem with groceries. I think I think Libby was bringing this up earlier in an email thread, and I think she's entirely correct. Yeah, I'm really stumped now because we have so few options. Like, where do we go for the mid-price? Uh, Kroger already owns Fred Meyer and QFC. Albertson's owns Safeway. So if this goes through, Kroger is going to own Fred Meyer, QFC, Albertson's Safeway. I mean... Literally, that leaves what Walmart and Target for more affordable groceries. Maybe Trader Joe's, but Costco. Uh, Costco, but I, I'm a you know I'm a couple I, household, two people household. That's mm. hard to shop at Costco. Do you need fifty gallons of ketchup? Like <laughs> maybe I do, but I, I don't need anything else. Then. Right, I just exactly. live on ketchup. So uh-huh. it's really a stumper. It 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 kind of blew my mind when I realized how consolidated the industry already is and where this would take it. Yeah, Catherine, I didn't realize that Walmart would be bigger than the combined Kroger and Albertsons in grocery store sales. You know, I think that's something that uh, we here in the Pacific Northwest might not realize because Walmart has a relatively small footprint up here. But nationwide, yes, uh, you know, even if these two grocery stores, Albertsons and, and Kroger do merge, Walmart will still be larger. Well, and also what's going to happen. I mean, what usually happens when when one chain buys another chain, it doesn't necessarily lead to expansion. Frequently, they to to make the the corp new larger corporation more efficient is layoffs happen after that. Yeah. And we're definitely, you know, on that recession point, right? Right now economically, I can't see how this is going to be a benefit to consumers uh in any way in any way that I could conceive of how this is going to help consumers. And I have no idea whether this would lead to store closures, but it makes me think of, uh, I don't know what Mayor Bruce Harrell has said. Libby's talked to him more, but I remember uh, the former mayor, Jenny Durkin, talking up the 15-minute city. She was saying it's like Paris, you know, that everywhere, no matter where you live, you're going to be close enough to a grocery store and a and a hardware store, everything you need. It's part of the... Uh, the, the vision for getting people around with fewer cars and, and you know, the grocery store is an anchor of that. Yeah, there would be like hubs where you right. have all the things you need throughout the city so that folks don't have to travel that far. It's a more efficient, less, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emitting kind of lifestyle. But not if you have to, you know, drive 20 minutes, load up your car with groceries. You know, that's more of a suburban style lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? You know, I'm, I'm thinking about... The local grocery chains now, unless you have the money to go to a farmer's market on the regular to load up on, you know, locally beautifully grown produce, you've got town and country. And that's I can't think of any other locally owned uh, grocery chain. Met Market is owned by the folks uh, who do uh, Bristol Farms in California. Um, you know, Whole Foods is an Amazon product. You know, if somebody else can email in or, or tweet us about a locally owned grocery chain, I'd love to hear about it. Oh, well, we've got PCC. Oh yeah, PCC, PCC Catherine. If, there if you, you go. if you you know if you want to spend even more money than you would at Whole Foods, yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> 
Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, even when you talk about farmers markets, and I love going to farmers markets, but it's not like they are charging you a realistic price. And the fact is that 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 realistic price sometimes is a little more than some people can afford. Yeah. And so these mark these giant supermarkets can actually are much more accessible for folks who are not on that middle income or higher income level. Yeah. Since we brought up uh, Amazon, owner of Whole Foods. Um, Catherine, you have also been reporting on how Amazon is has been slowing down in some ways, pulling back. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, Amazon told its uh, employees at an all-hands meeting this week to, quote, double down on frugality, which is uh, a, a rallying cry if I've ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Amazon's always been a famously frugal company. Uh, early employees were given desks made out of doors to save money. Uh, but in, uh, in, in the face of an uncertain market and, and slowing growth in Amazon's retail division, uh, the company is really seeking to scale back divisions that it sees as, as underperforming or, or duplicative. Uh, it's, uh, it's shut down Amazon Care, it's, its healthcare venture, it's scaling back its home delivery robot Scout. Uh, it, it shut down two warehouse robotics divisions. It's uh, shrinking the size of its Moonshots lab. It's getting rid of um, this sort of ill-starred virtual travel experiences division called Amazon Explore. I had never heard of that. It actually sounded kind of cool to me. I don't, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm not going to be able to travel everywhere physically. But it's sort of in the no vein more. of Airbnb experiences where you could you could uh, go online and order up uh, you know a tour of a foreign city for you know anywhere between fifteen and fifty dollars. It was sort of like a pandemic mm. pandemic project, mm. I, I believe. Okay. And what about Glow? There's, there's this video device that was supposed to connect kids with family that I'd actually never heard of. But uh, yeah, that's bailed, gone. Bailed the company that. is is freezing hiring, and it's it's retail division. Um, so far, we only know of about 400 employees who have been laid off. The company is saying that it's working hard to find positions inside the inside Amazon for for the rest of the folks whose uh, divisions are, are are getting shut down. Um, and simultaneously, Amazon is is still growing in its cloud computing wing um, and other parts of the company. And what is this going to mean? I assume that this is not, from an immediate term standpoint, that this is not going to be a a reduction in workforce. Certainly, in say the the Kent. Uh, fulfillment center because we're rolling into the holidays pretty quickly, which is when Amazon makes an enormous amount of money, right? Yep, that's right. Amazon uh, has said it's about to hire 150,000 temporary employees for the holidays. And we know from previous years that a huge proportion of of those temporary holiday workers stay on full-time afterwards. Is this going to... First of all, why is this happening? I mean, Amazon, they try a lot of things, you know, the Amazon phone and things that I will never hear of. And they shut things down. That's just the way of it. They're an innovative company. Um, so is there a systemic reason why they are shutting things down? Are they changing their mission? Is this just, uh, oh, there's a recession coming or there's inflation? I think Amazon is is looking at market indicators and seeing, okay, you know, uh, things look a little uncertain. Maybe there is a recession coming. And also a lot of the, um, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of folks predicted that the pandemic would permanently change our shopping habits, that, that folks would end up uh, spending a lot more money online than they had in the past. And we're seeing that that's maybe not quite as true as we initially thought. People like shopping in person and uh, e-commerce growth is slowing. Amazon is seeing that. And it's it's sort of trying to make some trims to account for that. But, you know, the company is still spending tons of money in, in areas that, 
you know, I, I, I believe it sees as, as mission critical. It just uh, spent announced that it's about to spend a, a billion dollars on raises and other benefits for warehouse workers. That's coming in the face of uh, labor activism at, at warehouses, lots of workers agitating for higher, higher wages. And also the, the, um, the stepped up hiring for the holiday rush. And we've talked before about how Amazon is planning to acquire um, one medical, the chain of physicians offices and, and iRobot. Um, both of those are companies that are doing quite well in business areas that Amazon had previously tried to um, develop internally. You know, I'm looking at the clock. We've, we've got less than five minutes to talk about another local giant company that's dealing with union issues since you brought that up. Catherine, you know, we keep hearing about Starbucks taking actions against employees who are union organizers. Is this A, illegal union busting, B, Starbucks applying every little technicality of the rules to pro-union employees in a way that's legal or see, it's just a huge coincidence. <laughs> well, it's not a huge coincidence, that's okay. for sure. And I think you're referring to some recent hearings uh, before the National Labor Relations Board where a Starbucks manager admitted that uh, some corporate higher-ups had given him a list of pro-union employees and told him to uh, start singling those employees out to be paying very close attention to any potential infractions they were making and then to be sure to discipline those employees for those infractions. Wearing purple Uh, pants. Exactly. Violations of the dress code was was one infraction. Um, You know, Starbucks, Starbucks's attorney uh, told told a judge that the disciplinary actions were taken, quote unquote, very carefully. And, and, uh, you know, all these policy violations were legitimate. You know, I think that this speaks to the tilted regulatory playing field that uh, workers face when they're attempting to organize a union. It's very difficult to determine um, you know, if a pro-union employee is being disciplined because they're pro-union or because they actually did commit a policy violation, mm-hmm. um, you know, at that point, you need to prove that uh, other workers who are not pro-union were not being disciplined for doing the same thing. That sort of thing can take months or years to to prove in, in, in federal court. And um, in the meantime, the workers are still out of a job. Uh <laughs> So it's it's uh, it it really can have a, a chilling effect on on union organizing. What's what's happening also in unions, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Catherine, but it appears that union unions which have been in decline, and primarily labor unions, meaning sort of construction unions and, and other things like that, have been low uh, auto manufacturing. Though that membership has been dropping, but the union movement as a whole has really made entry into service industry unions. So, for example, the idea of, of organizing folks at, uh, at Starbucks or maybe even in, a, in an Amazon fulfillment center, center or two, it seems like this is also what's happening here is this is an area where, where union organizers see a possibility of actual expanding union numbers and not and resisting somewhat of the overall decline in union membership. Yeah, I, th- I think that's certainly I think that's certainly true. You know, um, there's a lot of momentum around organizing Starbucks locations. Uh, the the track record for uh, the Starbucks that have had union elections is quite good. I think the the overwhelming majority of them have voted in favor of a union. 
I note that a National Labor Relations Board judge ruled that Starbucks violated federal law in Kansas and Missouri by firing pro-union employees, stepping up enforcement of its dress code, and asking for police to disperse workers with picket signs. Uh, and the, the, as you say, the Starbucks attorney said uh, these actions were taken carefully. And you can appeal a, a National Labor Relations Board judge's order. So that might go, who, that might go to, the, to labor board members in Washington, could go to a federal court. So we'll see. It's all a bit strange just knowing, again, I, back to our crabbing, you know, having gone to college with uh, this interviewee uh, who, who sells seafood, is that, is that Starbucks was out ahead in wages in the 90s, health insurance, stock options for even part-time employees, free online college to, to all employees, and now Howard Schultz is gone, and, and it's just, you know, the things have turned. Well, and I don't know if... Uh Everybody read this really interesting profile of Schultz that came out like 10 days ago in the Washington Post that this reporter was able to spend a lot of time with him over the course of uh, several weeks where he was, you know, touring the country, meeting a lot of individual Starbucks employees, really trying to like make the case that the employees don't need to unionize, that they're getting a great deal from Starbucks. And Schultz himself takes this really personally. That was what became really clear from that profile that he really believes in this kind of more compassionate, quote unquote, uh, capitalism that he has leaned into through the 90s and when he was building the company. And I think that this is a tough time. Not that, you know, that makes a difference for workers who are struggling, but this is a tough time for him to understand where this anger is coming from. It's like the playing field has shifted. The reality for the American worker has shifted. And what's been good enough and even better than the industry for so long for Howard Schultz is no longer that. And he's I don't know if he's fully adjusted to that. Yeah. And a lot of those workers were frustrated that he seemed to be so frustrated that they they thought it was had gotten emotional instead of him looking at, look, this is how much we make. This is what it costs to afford an apartment. This is, you know, health care, et cetera. Yeah. I I can't remember. Was it Washington Post? Is that where you saw it? Yeah. The Washington Post. It was a really great profile. It was a terrific profile. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll I'll get the reporter here in just a second. Greg Jaffe. Greg Greg Jaffe. Right. Uh, okay, listen, we're going we're gonna to pause here on Week in Review because, again, I want to remind you that all the information you get, the context you get, the journalist, professional journalists exchanging information and views, uh, that happens on KUOW all the time from NPR and the BBC and here locally on Week in Review. And I'm asking you, Week in Review fans, to step up right now and support this program financially. Uh, I don't know if I, uh, maybe I would take it personally otherwise. Oh, you're going to pull a Schultz. (laughs) See what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, It's uh, KOW.org, or you can do it on the phone, 206-543-9595. or KUOW.org. The kind of quality programming that KUOW brings you day in and day out requires your support. That's how NPR works across the nation with its member stations. We uh, bring you the national programming like Morning Edition, All Things Considered, you know, Fresh Air, all kinds of programming. But we have to pay for that programming in order to broadcast it freely here in the Seattle area and across western Washington. Uh, it also, of course, takes funding to make the local programming that connects you to your 
your community. All of that adds up to because we do we're not beholden to large corporations. We're not beholden to trying to sell you a car or LASIK surgery or whatever. It adds up to needing to lean on you, the listener who value this service, value it as a public service with no paywall and no subscription fee and believe in supporting public radio. 206-543-9595 KUOW.org. You are our largest and most reliable source of funding and we do need your help today. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'll get to it later. But here's the thing. This anonymous Week in Review fan has offered to entice you, to challenge you, because they've said, okay, Week in Review, if you can get $1,000 in donations this hour during today's show, I'll match all of that dollar for dollar. So you've got twice the decision to be made here. Your donation can be doubled just like that if you make it now. But, you know, two times nothing is nothing. So what's it going to be? Go to KUOW.org. There's an orange Donate Now button, and it goes really quick. You can choose a thank you gift or give us a call. You like to talk to a person about how much you love KUOW, 206-543-9595. But uh, this is the time. Let's uh, let's take this Take this challenge. Just take the money. It's there on the table. Yep. Uh, the table's within reach, so let's pick it up. Yeah, let's let's pick it up. And, you know, when you think about the value that KOW brings you year in and year out, also think about the fact that only one in 10 listeners gives to public radio. That is kind of a crazy statistic. Of course, a lot of those folks can't fit it in their budget, and that's absolutely understandable. We are here as a public service with no paywalls, no subscription fees for a reason. But if you can fit it in your budget, whether it's a one-time gift, whether it's $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever it is, ask yourself why you haven't given yet. What, all the time that you spend listening to KUOW, all the ways that NPR keeps you informed, all the ways that we can review and soundside throughout the week, keep you connected. Why have you uh, been hesitating? And let's throw those hesitations out the door and make time right now. 206-543-9595 or KUOW.org. Let's take another quick break and get back at more of what happened this week as we do on Week in Review. Stay tuned. It's KUOW's Week in Review with our Soundside host Libby Denkman with us today and Insider's Catherine Long and GeekWire's Mike Lewis. I'm Bill Radke. Seattle's mayor wants to spend a million bucks on a gunshot detector system. It's a network of microphones on rooftops and utility poles in neighborhoods with higher reported gun crime. It's supposed to identify the distinct sound of a gunfire and where it's coming from. Could include video cameras, too. KUOW's reporter Amy Radel spoke with a critic of the ShotSpotter program. Jennifer Lee with the ACLU of Washington says Harrell and other Seattle officials have wanted this system for about a decade. When it was first proposed many years ago in Seattle, it was shot down because of the surveillance concerns and the issues around privacy. But, you know, beyond the privacy issues, the use of ShotSpotter poses many other concerns. She points to a report from Chicago's Office of Inspector General last year that found those gunfire alerts rarely led to evidence of gun crimes, investigatory stops, or recovery of a firearm. But Mayor Harrell's office says families of gun violence victims are calling for the system in hopes of solving more shootings. Victoria Beach serves as an advisory consultant to the police department and chairs their African-American Community Advisory Council. She says she's spoken with those families. I hear their weeping and crying and their lives are changed forever. So I'm willing to do anything that is going to stop that. 
Beach says she called 911 last month to report a brawl outside her home. Gunfire erupted while she was on the phone with dispatchers, and she says it still took officers 15 minutes to respond. She hopes the new system could speed that response. Then there are times she doesn't bother to call 911 anymore. She says desperation is fueling her support for the gunshot locator system. You know, nothing else has worked. And why not try something we haven't tried? So we just heard that Chicago's inspector general found these gunfire alerts ineffective. Some people say, well, why not try something new? Gun violence is at a 10-year high. So what, what else should our listeners understand about ShotSpotter and why our mayor is still uh, so keen on this? I think it's important to point out that not only did the OIG in Chicago find that it rarely, the response to ShotSpotter, rarely uh, brought up evidence of a gun-related crime or you know anything that they could really act on. The really disturbing thing was the way that the presence of ShotSpotter changed the disposition of police that were deployed in neighborhoods where ShotSpotter was present. The police started to think there was more gun crime happening in those areas, and they went in with a with a preconceived notion about those neighborhoods. And that potentially creates more uh, aggressive encounters with populations that are mostly people of color and can cause a lot of more problems. I mean, it's not just that the technology isn't effective. It's that it could actually create more issues in these communities. And that's really something that I hope Seattle's looking at. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Libby. And I, I, you know, in in addition to to changing the disposition of police officers entering these communities, you know, the faulty evidence that ShotSpotter does provide sometimes means people are languishing behind bars for things they didn't do based on, uh, you know, this this uh, false false gunshot uh, noise that ShotSpotter reported. The the other I mean, the basic question is, is and this has been the question behind a lot of uh, spectacular technology failures. Uh, in the last 30 years, is does the tech work? You know, it's a pretty simple question. And in this case, it appears that it doesn't work very well. It frequently is misinterpreting car backfires as gunshots, other sounds as gunshots, then missing actual gunshots, at least according to officials in Chicago, a place that you would think has a sample size large enough to get this tech somewhat correct. It doesn't appear that it, the Seattle investing a million dollars in this makes a whole lot of sense at this point. Now, it could be at some point they get this technology to a place where you should invest in it as a city, but it doesn't appear to me to be there. And Mayor Harrell, remember, he's almost digging in on a promise he made during his campaign to get this job, that he was going to bring this technology and it's going to help compensate for historic 30-year low staffing of the Seattle Police Department, but it doesn't appear that it's it's fully baked yet. But right? Here's what I still don't understand. The Seattle... Police are, as you said, they they're they're understaffed. They, I, I can't imagine any city police department wanting to waste its time and waste what resources it has. This program is being used. Portland just signed up to give it a trial. It's in dozens of cities: San Francisco, Boston, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Detroit. Uh, San Antonio just discontinued it. Said it wasn't really doing much. But um, but other other cities con- are continuing, and it's a pilot program. Why? If it's if it's so clearly ineffective, why would 
uh, Harold or the Seattle Police Department want to bother? I don't know if we can answer that definitively, but we can look at reporting like what the South Seattle Emerald has been doing uh, uh, on the lobbying efforts that the CEO of ShotSpotter and executives in the company have done in Seattle and various cities. There have been small donations from C- uh, executives with ShotSpotter to like the Herald. dollars Yeah, donations. it's small. Yeah. Um, but there's been consistent uh, communication and lobbying over the years. And I think that those uh, companies having that kind of influence at City Hall, we don't know the degree to influence. We don't know that we knew that they had to register for lobbying. And so what kind of uh, communication is happening? Are officials looking at all the information, all the different types of analysis, for example, the Chicago IG analysis, and weighting that against the conversations they're having with the company? We don't know that. And I would also say to, to Libby's earlier point that that this isn't but if they so 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 the idea is when they come in and lobby, say why not try it? You know, there's no downside, and apparently there is a downside. In some cities, they found that it actually is sort of leaning law enforcement the wrong direction or potentially a wrong direction, and so just trying it out is not necessarily as benign, I think, as people would think that it is. Okay, well, that is a proposal in uh, Mayor Harrell's budget, and this this is going through city council. This is a big process of many, many budget proposals. Right. And, and uh, so we'll see whether this winds up being a pilot program in the city of Seattle. You're listening to Week in Review, and we're already almost at the end of this hour, which means a couple of things. Number one, I always want to leave listeners something to smile about. What are we feeling hopeful about or happy about? Uh, number two, this hour about to end means that this listener who offered to match all the donations we get this hour, if we can get $1,000 in, it's time to really take them up on that. So I'm telling you, we've got phone lines here. Even as we're doing the show, you can go call 206-543-9595. You can go online to KUOW.org. And you can support to this kind of local conversation among local journalists who know stuff and don't know stuff and compare notes. And we ask each other. We can review Soundside Seattle now in support of local journalism. That's why you're making a donation. 206-543-9595. KUOW. W.org. We just have about seven minutes left, and we're asking for you to step up and help maximize this challenge. We really do need to take every single dollar and turn it into public radio programming, reporting, uh, you know, the shows that you listen to. All of that uh, is needed and necessary. We can't afford to walk away from any of these challenges. We are asking for your support during this weekend review. We have had a wonderful drive so far these five days of the fall drive, but there's absolutely a chance that you fall down at the finish line, right? That you kind of, uh, you you go into a slow energy mode because people think, oh, it's the last day of the drive. You know, it'll be fine. We'll we'll take care of it. You see those YouTube YouTube videos of athletes who celebrated too soon? Oh, God. (laughs) I know it's kind of like cat videos, but it's addicting. Yes, but we don't want that to be Yeah, so 206-543-9595-KUOW.org. It matters when the local programming produced by KUOW sees support during these member drives. It matters. I mean, it's just as simple as that. So if you believe in We Can Review, this is the time to put your money where your values are. 206-543-9595 or KUOW.org. Okay, we're going to get back to We Can Review. I just want to make one little pitch for the tote bag, the, the, the one tote bag to rule them all. 
Have you seen the the? It's the it's a coffee bean it's really bag. Cool. It's this soft burlap with the with the in the liner stitched in, and I think that's going to be a a beautiful addition to the constellation of KOW. Everyone tote bags. is unique. And everyone is uh, created by an artisan with the Refugee Artisan Initiative. That's a, a local partnership. It's a limited run that we've done on those tote bags. It's yeah. a really unique one. And 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 they're offering, KOW is offering that and the Right to Bear Knowledge t-shirt. I don't know if this was a, a, a fat bear contestant or not. The bear looks fairly well taken care of around the jowls. It's hard to say. I don't know. Fat bear, that's a high bar to reach. Have you seen those bears? Yes, but this is are. a beautifully plump bear. It this does is, seem, yes. Yeah. And it seems informed to me. And, well, uh, it's the glasses, right? It I seems really smart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the bear T-shirt and the new tote bag, that's one way to go as a thank you gift if you can donate. And Libby's holding it up on uh, on our uh, YouTube and um, Facebook streamed show right now. Uh, looking good. So, um, so you know, uh, you're, uh, make a donation for the programming, but a little thank you gift is nice, too. KUOW.org or 206-543-9595. Okay, we've got, uh, we've got time to... Uh, to end on a happy note, um, what's so? What's happy? Uh, I nope. think I will. <laughs> yeah. I'll jump in because okay. I rarely jump in on on the happy end of things. Why but I'll jump that? in on. Why is that? I don't know. I just think I run out of time. It's hard for me to come up with one. But I've got one that I'm holding in abeyance uh-huh. until tomorrow. Until tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Because of the Mariners. So oh, no. we will see what happens. But I gotta say that's stressful. That's not happy. It's well, except that. The fact that everyone is stressed out about baseball in October is kind of a good thing. And that actually, I mean, I'm not, I didn't grow up a Giants fan in California. I didn't grow up a Mariners fan. But I really love to see everyone locally. The Mariners fans are so long-suffering. I want to see the Mariners do exceptionally well. And I love the fact that we're talking about Mariners baseball in October. I think that's worth a smile. I know that beating the Astros at this point will be hard. But how can I grasp the magnitude of the challenge? What could I try to do that would be equally unlikely? Take a spaceship the size of a golf cart and smack it into an asteroid the size of an Egyptian pyramid at 14,000 miles an hour. Well, that happened. So, right? So miracles can occur. Uh, Catherine, anything? You've got the vintage Mariners cap on there, I see. That's right. Folks who are watching the live stream can see me rocking the uh, unlucky upside-down trident hat. But <laughs> my my note of happiness is also related to the Mariners. I think it's great that Governor Inslee temporarily renamed our fairies after Mariners players. <laughs> and, uh, you can find me on Marine Vessel Big Dumper <laughs> going to Bainbridge <laughs> Island. <laughs> yeah, Big Dumper is our catcher's uh, nickname. Apparently, he's, it's a booty thing. Um, Apparently. Yeah. So they say. I wouldn't know. So they say, I wouldn't know. But if I'm on the Robbie Ray and it's heading for the Fauntleroy dock and the ferry ride is almost over, it's the last inning of the ferry ride. Oof. Throw a is sinker. That gonna, is that gonna throw, throw, oh, a sinker. I didn't even think of that. Libby. That's a creative fairy burn there. It really was. Bill. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to have a kind of a, a serious one here, but it is yeah. really inspiring and making me hopeful if not happy it's the women of iran and the work that they are still doing in the streets and the the young people especially there to protest against their very oppressive regime those protests have never been as long-lasting and as widespread as they have been uh, here in the last month and a half in the wake of the death of Massa amini um, this has been the biggest 
popular uprising there since the 1979 revolution. And while we don't know what's next, I just want to say that these women who are standing up and facing the possibility of being killed by security forces, being beaten and arrested by security forces are the some of the bravest individuals I've ever seen. And, um, you know, the, the local Iranian community has been out in the streets of Bellevue and other places around Seattle to support them and call attention to them. And they are also really inspiring me. And, and again, it's a, it's more hopeful, you know, that, but it yes. does, it's making me smile and, and uh, hoping for the best. That's Libby Denkman, who you'll hear on Soundside again uh, starting on Monday. KUOW's Libby Denkman, insider tech correspondent Catherine Long, GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Uh, it makes me smile that you uh, came on and did our show so well again today. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Bill. Exactly. Thanks, Bill. And thank you to Week in Review producer Kevin Kanistet and social media and live streaming producers Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. I'm Bill Radke. Thanks for donating to KUOW, and we'll see you again next week.